0: Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, when I first started dreaming of launching this show back in 2018, I asked on Twitter, who should I be interviewing? Along with seasoned IC pros, you wanted to hear from leaders, successful chief executives using internal communication to drive the performance of their organizations. Well, I am thrilled to bring you exactly that, a chief executive with an exceptional understanding of the true power of communication and engagement. Adrienne Kelby is the first female chief executive at the Office for Nuclear Regulation. She describes herself as an outlier, markedly different from other chief executives, and you will soon hear why. Adrienne is a passionate advocate of values-based leadership, of transparency and accessibility and diversity in all its forms. She has especially helpful advice to us on failure. Your comfort zone, she says, is not your friend. Adrienne firmly believes leaders, true leaders, coach and develop those around them to be their very best selves and to prove it She's offering a free mentoring session to one lucky listener of the show. Simply share with us what you enjoyed about our conversation by tweeting us at abthinks. And we'll ask Adrienne to pick someone for a personal one-to-one coaching session with her. Listeners, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Adrienne has been described as a transformational leader. And for once, this is not an overstatement. So, Adrienne, what a pleasure to have you on the Internal Comms podcast. I've been so looking forward to this recording. So thank you so much for your time. I am most welcome. It's a pleasure. I thought we could start by giving people a sense of the work of the Office for Nuclear Regulation. Your new mission for 2020 to 2025 is to protect society by securing safe nuclear operations. Now I'm just wondering what that actually means in practice in terms of your day-to-day work at the ONR. So it's
1: great to be able to explain it a little bit to an audience that might not be familiar with us. One Hours Regulation is all about keeping the public safe. That's what drives every single one of us. We regulate safety, security, and also safeguards. Uh, and essentially our job is to help the nuclear industry keep the lights on safely for the workers and for the public and make sure that transport of essential materials gets to places like hospitals uh, safely and securely too. Um, we're a little bit different from uh, many other regulators because we take a really goal-setting, enabling approach So instead of being highly prescriptive, like a lot of people imagine regulators are, you know, the ones with the clipboards that are ticking things off, you know, yes, no, no, we're really not like this because, you know, the nuclear sector is a very mature, but also a very special one. So we're very flexible to different needs, um, both the kinds of different organisations and the different kinds of technologies. And we really look to share practice and drive up standards. So... What I love about ONR's job, you know, that that mission of protecting society is for every single one of us. You know, we work as a team behind the scenes and it really doesn't matter which one of us you ask what we do, that's what we see. So we're really, really proud of our mission and we're proud of how well we deliver it. Mm-hmm.
0: It's amazing because it obviously drives a great sense of purpose, I'm sure, across your organisation. Very much. So I'm just thinking about the wider context of the nuclear sector more generally I'm curious about what some of the big trends and forces are that are shaping your work in researching for this episode I went down a slight rabbit hole which you might be able to help me out with which is whether nuclear energy is actually renewable or not now I don't know if that is a big debate but yeah what are some of the big trends and forces shaping the world of of the nuclear industry and energy Uh, so I
1: probably pick up Five things that are shaping us in reflecting the nuclear sector at the moment. I'll sort those out and then maybe run through them. COVID nineteen, that's affecting everyone at the moment. Um, Certainly, the environmental crisis and the UK's net zero targets. Um, I think also the need to embrace uh, innovation and new technology. um, You know, right across many many sectors in the world at the moment. Um, And I think for us in the UK in particular, uh, the the kind of status of the current flight, as well as um, a shortage of skills in the kind of STEM sector. So if I take those points, you know, COVID-19, working through this experience is going to challenge assumptions about what is done, how it's done for for many sectors and and many organisations. I think that the nuclear sector and certainly ONR will want to and have to learn from this to help protect people and the environment. You know, I think that ONR will come out of this in a way um, that we can reduce our carbon footprint that just a few months ago we thought would be impossible. We will learn new ways of working, not just technology like I'm talking to you on, on a, this phone line with a little video as opposed to being next to you. You know, We're learning how to do this, but also working with industry to see how we safely regulate in different ways. And I think that does play into you know, what I certainly would recognise as the environmental crisis. The UK's net zero targets by 2050 only take us back to not making it any worse. And arguably, there's much more to be done uh, for the planet and for the environment that sustains us all. But certainly the government's nuclear sector deal and um, seeks to support that with four targets by 2030. And these are quite compelling. The first is to reduce the cost of new reactors by 30%. That's nearly a third. Wow. It also wants to save about a fifth of the cost of decommissioning. That's those plants that are no longer operating at the end of their life. Um, And for me, a big number, um, having been an ex-patron of women in nuclear and and really passionate about diversity, they've also recognised that they want to achieve 40% of women in nuclear roles by that year, uh, by 2030. And, And they also want UK firms to win up to about £2 billion of domestic and international contracts So you see that the drivers of the nuclear sector deal, which is government, clearly not, is on costs, but it's also on diversity and it's on the supply chain and the UK economy. So clearly we are facing into all of those things in the way that we work, but not ever sacrificing
0: safety uh, in our standards. Just on that diversity point, you said the target's 40%. What is it today? It's about 22%, 23% today,
1: which covers women in all roles in the sector. Mm. If you compare that to engineering, you know, the number of women engineers in the engineering sector is only 12%. So we have got some way to go, and we certainly have a way to go to get more women into technical roles. And if we've got time, we might come back to that um, a little later. Mm. But I think when you look at that kind of news of working, looking to make things more efficient, to reduce the burden on those who pay for their power clearly, you also then move neatly into that third point about embracing innovation and new technology. And for us, that's about all stages, all the way from new builds, we call them paper reactors, where we're assessing the designs that might come onto UK soil right through to current plants. They might want to do things a little bit differently, try new technology, all the way to, as I say, those, those decommissioned uh, sites. And, and I think just within that, you know, the UK fleet is, is pretty old. Um, it is an aging fleet uh, in our language. We need to make sure that it continues to run safely for the rest of its life. And at the moment, that depends very much on uh, several factors. We are working those through with EDF, which runs the fleet in this country. And then that last one really is about that skill shortage that, that I mentioned there is a lack of diversity in the nuclear sector. I speak about gender as an example, but it really is across the piece. And I think it's incredibly important that um, we encourage more young people who want to work in science, technology, you know, engineering and math fields, and especially to see more girls see it as a path for them so that we can have a far more diverse workforce than, than is present. And that requires parents, it requires teachers, it requires professors. Uh, to really get behind and encourage people to see in it as a great
0: career option and not to shy away from you know, their energy. It's exciting. I just wonder if you've got any personal reflections on the environmental crisis now, because I've been reading people say, well, you know, we've got this current crisis and we've all come together to kind of face it and overcome it together as a planet. And they're reflecting on whether that might make us more kind of focused on the next really big crisis that's coming down our way, the environmental crisis. Do you think this crisis might weirdly actually support our efforts to address the environmental crisis?
1: I think it has the potential to support our efforts because people are doing things which have a much, much lower carbon footprint. But we have to remember there are a number of people on the planet who do not believe that global warming is something which needs to be attended to. And and for me, I think politics is an incredibly powerful force when the agenda is set correctly. This is not an ONR view. I have to stress this is my personal view. I find that politics are very difficult to be global because countries have different agendas and would see themselves as having different propositions. We only need to look at some of the conventions around the environment to understand how differently some of the larger countries work and and we really need the larger countries to to play a full role in this. So I'd like to think so, but I'm probably somebody who would need to be convinced because it isn't just the activists, it isn't just the grassroots, you know, the regular people like you and I who need our voice to be heard in this regard. It is our politicians who need to, to find a way of collaborating and not competing so that we can save the planet.
0: And that big question around, and forgive me because my technical knowledge is is so slight, and I've never been inside a nuclear plant. But that whole debate about whether it's renewable or not renewable, how do you how do you address that?
1: I think the challenge is if you look at the life cycle of nuclear. At the moment, there is a significant waste um, challenge, which ONR is a part of making sure the country can address. And I think people are rightly sceptical that that nuclear is entirely clean until that. Loop is closed at the end of the process where there is a really clear uh, policy on decommissioning and waste, and that is something that the government is working on. They have several consultations out at the moment. Um, but personally, you know, I, I do see it as having the potential to be seen as a as a green source of energy that is sustainable. I am not pro nuclear to be safe. I, you know, ONR is very much pro safe and secure, and that's what
0: we're all about. But certainly, the science on this would would take people to that conclusion. I would say so. In terms of sort of getting to know you a little bit better, I guess, what I'd like to do is take you back to the age of 12, and you're about to take part, I believe, in your first show jumping competition. This might seem like a very strange place to start, but I'm just wondering if you can describe what happened and how that experience has shaped maybe your attitude to success and failure from then on. Oh my goodness, you have done your research.
1: OK, well, my parents were incredibly supportive of me throughout my um, upbringing. Um, not in a soft way, I hesitate to add, but I got it into my head at about the age of seven that I really, really wanted to to, to ride ponies. And my mum had, had helped the riding for the disabled and so on. And um, she sort of got to it with me and, and eventually through, you know, basically a, a lot of irritating them. Uh, they got me a lone pony, so it wasn't mine. It was a lone pony called Sula Electric, like a kind of skinny little grey thing. And um, I'd done little show jumping competitions in pony club on hired horses because that's what you do when you you, know, you go to you go to the riding school, you get given a given a pony. And I was so I mean I I cannot tell you how excited I was about this. You know I was there hours early. Um, I was in that very cold, wet uh, practice ring, you know, for way too long. Um, and essentially, I, I was so kind of overprepared and um, my anxiety, my energy and it all was entirely wrong. I, I now realise this, that, you know, you have to be calm and collected, even in stressful situations. But I thought that if I just, you know, went really early, got really ready, it'd be better. And, and I couldn't have been further from the truth. It's an, in, in, it's an indoor arena. So it's kind of got a sandy floor. There's all these show jumps around the place. So you have to walk the course and, you know, see what route you're going to take. And frankly, you know, I've got visions that I might, you know, just about get round. And there's a gallery up one side of all these people, strangers mainly looking at you, but also people in the pony club. You know, at this age, I am 12 and my father is there who, you know, always expects, you know, make me to do well and I presented Sula her name was at, at the first fence and not surprisingly on reflection she basically said I don't think so so <laughs> she stopped uh, she dipped her head at the fence stopped I am um, you know stayed on thankfully um, and I thought right okay so you know you have to, to get yourself together you have to go around this you know ring of shame by this stage to go back you know uh, up I go the second time, you know, I'm feeling a bit more positive, but I'm still really worried because now I've got the added thing that I've already failed and people are probably laughing at me. Uh, and I present her at the first fence again and she says, you know, no, thank you again. So I take a deep breath. Um, you know, my cheeks, to be clear, are absolutely burning at this stage. Um, I am mortified. So I, I get on reflection. I realise I'm not communicating positive energy Around round I go again, and by this stage, even I don't think I'm going to get over it. You know, I'm not strong on my legs. I'm probably a bit flappy. Sula kindly says, absolutely not. So this bell rings, and it's like a school bell that tells you to go home at four o'clock. This bell rings, and I look up, and I just see everybody kind of talking to themselves. And, and basically, I didn't even go over the first fence. How humiliating. So I went out, you know, my dad tries to speak to me. I don't want to speak to you. Um, my mum. How did you get on, darling? You know, look at my stony face. Can't you tell? I think I probably didn't speak for a couple of days. And I basically, I felt pretty sorry for myself. And um, my lovely parents, in in their own way, explained that, you know, that isn't a choice. Get up there. You've got a pony to look after. It's a living being. Get back on it. And if you don't want to ride ever again, that's fine. But this is where you make your decision. So literally, I am the living embodiment of get back on the horse. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I, I think until you, you know, the only thing I managed not to do was fall off, frankly, but I might as well have. And and, and I think really what I've learned, and, and I do think about that story much as I'm literally burning, your ears can't see it because this is a telephone podcast, thankfully, but I am very hot even thinking about it. And this, you know, for me was that I learned that failure has to be expected on the way to success. I'm not afraid of failure like I used to be. I still don't want to fail, but I'm. Much more open as an adult, and, and it took me a while to get the hang of this. But to try things that I know they might not work, and um, I still hate when things go wrong. Uh, but I do try and keep it in perspective, and, and I think it's made me very tenacious. You know, I don't give up on things that I see important. And there are probably work things where I've been, you know, eliminated at the first fence. On occasion, you ever got into a meeting, screwed up, and had to phone back later and say I'm so sorry. Let me try that again. Or you have a relationship where, you know, you just have a bad conversation and you realise that you didn't play a positive part in that, where you speak to that person and say, you know, I'm sorry about that. This didn't work. This is what I mean. This is what I wanted to to achieve with you. So, I mean, the other thing I I think was that I'm a really big believer in recognising when your comfort zone is in charge. And I realised that that was about being pushed out of my comfort zone I didn't realise that when I got in the ring, I actually thought I was going to do quite well. Because you do, don't you? Because in thinking you're going to completely fail. Um, But, you know, I realised that the comfort zone for me wasn't going into the show jumping ring on my first lone pony. My comfort zone was having to attack dealing with failure. Your comfort zone is not your friend. It's warm and it's seductive and it's a place where you feel very comfortable and warm, but it, nothing grows there it's a horrible place get out you do not want to live in your comfort zone even back to the age of 12 I was prepared to run away I was actually prepared to give up my life stream at that age you know as, as you all do when you're 12 just because I was really embarrassed and I failed um and I'm glad I didn't because you know I went on to be very fortunate and um, my mum and dad eventually gave in and actually got me my own pony and I was able to jump at a Scottish level and on national teams and and you know i think i learned that lesson early if anything i would encourage people to keep learning how to feel because it also teaches you how to succeed
0: absolutely it's interesting isn't it i always think of failure is not the opposite of success but actually potentially one step closer to success um you haven't quite got there yet but you're on your way one thing you said there about failure that really struck me and, and you said you know i may not have dealt with a meeting quite correctly so I go back and have the conversation again and say, I I could have done that differently, is by not burying your head in the sand and thinking, oh my gosh, that was so awful, I just want to forget about it. But by going back around the circle again and facing that and having a conversation about it, you potentially learn that what you think was absolutely disastrous and you want to beat yourself up about it for, for days and weeks afterwards. By having the conversation about it, you think, oh, well, yeah, it wasn't great, but actually... No one else is actually lying awake at night worrying about it. So I might stop doing that as well.
1: I think it is important to go back. And, and even sometimes we might not realise
0: the impact at the time, but
1: your know, word gets you through another way. And I think God, I thought it was being perfectly reasonable there. But the fact is another person received it differently. And, you know, we have to, I think, learn from impact rather than intention. So whilst I may intend for this to happen, if it, if it has a negative impact, that means somebody doesn't want to come back. It means they won't trust me again or they'll be more cautious. And actually, I'm all about wanting people to, to be less cautious wanting to be bigger and, and try new things and feel confident to be themselves. So I think it's incredibly important that as leaders and, and colleagues, we both offer uh, forgiveness and seek forgiveness. And I didn't have a, a great month. I took it back last November. I wasn't sleeping well and it had been happening for weeks and weeks. I am a bit of an insomniac, which is a challenge. Uh, You know, I had some stuff going on. I, I wasn't feeling very well. And, you know, I know I was in a group meeting of people that I wanted to inspire and encourage. And um I know I did a bad job of it. I, I just did a bad job. And it took me a couple of weeks to kind of come through that. You know, I started to feel well again. I got some feedback. You know, you write a note and, and you apologise. You explain what was intended and you see each other. And there's a bit of that kind of... So it's a bit like actually the horses, you know, they keep a distance and and, and we sometimes don't see people doing that because you're in physical proximity in the room. You know, it's not that they get to walk 12 feet away, but you can tell it in the dynamic. And I think unless you say, let's talk about what happened first and take accountability for that, then it's hard to move beyond it. People move around things, but it's far better to move through things. And Mm. for me, it is about just recognising sometimes your days don't go well. None of us are superstars. None of us are superheroes. We do not get everything right every day. At least I don't know anybody who does. So naturally, I think people do want to forgive. You know, they want to know what was intended, but you cannot gloss over that by pretending as it would have been in the horses that I won my first competition. I didn't. I was
0: absolutely rubbish. You know, there was no way (laughs) around it. But we just have to see that, I think, as leaders as well. This also may seem like a strange segue, but... I've heard you speak about the interview process for your current role and how rigorous it was. And what struck me about this and why I wanted to ask you about it is as communicators, we are often asked to boil down lots of very big ideas into something very succinct and impactful. And I just wondered if you we could talk a little bit about how you presented your vision for the future of ONR at that interview and how you tackled that essentially communications challenge.
1: Um I'm beginning to think that you're my stalker and you've got me back, but I'm going to press ask that for the purposes of this. <laughs> so, yes. So, I mean, the job at O&R came up for me because a headhunter called and I misunderstood the question the first time. I thought they were asking me if I knew anyone and I said no and they kind of lightly hung up and then they called back later and said, no, 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 no. You know, actually, we're wondering if you might consider it. Um, and I, I didn't understand why they thought I might be a good leader for ONR because I'm not technical, I'm not nuclear, and, and I'm not one of these clever folk with a STEM degree. And I thought, OK, tell me a bit more about it. And, and what they really said is we need somebody who can lead the organisation with a different skill set. And we're seeking diversity. And they also wanted somebody who could think about the communications in particular, with stakeholders. So you know, I do think an interview is very similar to any other communication channel. You have a number of people who want to elicit certain information from you, and um, you need to make it count because you have maybe forty minutes to you know, win a dream job. And by the time I finished that interview, I totally wanted this job. I can tell you, <sighs> I, I got it. But essentially, there's five people on a panel. What do I want them to feel about what I'm saying and about me? You know, can can they envisage me as the leader for this amazing organisation? what I want them to see and believe about me. And I think very much part of my style is to keep things relatively simple and I'm quite personal. There is a lot of things that you want to say. You want to convince people to give you an awesome job. But, you know, I stuck to three main points and I told a story about how I would do that. So I had, I think, 10 minutes. Um, I wasn't allowed to use, I remember I wasn't allowed to use any visual aids, including notes, which I find really tough because I always have notes. So it had to be simple because I also had to remember it. So I went for the simplest of all things. I went for ABC. So my vision um, for ONR was very much about advancing our regulation, building our reputation and improving our capability and capacity. So that was talking about our core operations, the whole thing about being a public sector body that people had to trust and our staff. And really, that gave me, even if I couldn't remember all the things I wanted to say, it gave me that structure, you know, advancing regulation, building reputation, improving capability and capacity. Um, And it actually then led to most of the conversation for the rest of the the rest of the interview, because they were able to go back to things I've said there. And it actually gave a really good bridge, as opposed to, you know, those interviews where it's like tumbleweed, you know, you do your presentation and then it's like, thank you, you know. Panel member number one, would you like to ask your questions? <laughs> panel member number two, I've already talked a bit about that. Actually, that interview panel was really interested and they built bridges between that, that sort of starting presentation um, and, you know, I, I, I had my written notes at home and when I started the job, I took them in and they've pretty much been what I've been doing. Certainly those first couple of years, they were the mantras, so it wasn't just a wishy-washy interview. So that notion of keeping things simple, Tell the stories about how you'll do things. Be personal. Don't be formal. People have to see you as a communicator, not your lines, not your daughter. They need to see what you are like because they also have to get a feel for whether they trust you, want to work with you, and can they see you in situ? And I always say to folk, there's no point in showing up as the interview, pretending to be a different person because when you turn up for the job, people are going to be deeply disappointed. And I think in comms across the piece, if you're not authentic, if you're not yourself, then you are not going to compel
0: anybody to believe you. I love that idea. And you said straight off, what did you want people to feel? Because feeling comes first, doesn't it? So what's shaped your approach to leadership? I mean, you've had some big leadership roles. You were at the National Lottery, I believe, as well. Um, what shaped your 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 approach to leadership? Did you have some early influences or potential leaders as bosses that you admired? I think my,
1: my bosses, certainly my parents and, and all my teams have influenced me and all of my jobs. I think probably the early days for me that, I mean, I have, I, I don't know if your sort of listeners will know, but I started life as a, as a temp, a Kelly Services temp, as a PA and or whatever else would pay me my early rate. I've been a trainer, uh, I've been a secretary, I've been a training coordinator, I've been an office manager, I happen to be a chief exec now, I've been an ops manager, a deputy chief exec, I, I literally will try anything that looks interesting that people will, will have me for. So, you know, there's been huge diverse influences, uh, you know, in the last four jobs, everyone has been in a different sector. So I'm, I'm happy to to feel out of my comfort zone, um, as far as you can be to learn. But, but the most pivotal one, I think, in shaping my approach was when I was a trainer. And if I take you back, you know, this would be in my very early 20s. You know, that really anchored for me the most practical impact about how to develop others. And I do think as a leader, your job is a communicator and a developer. And if you're not developing other folk, then you're probably not a leader. And I think leader is not hierarchical. For me, that is about, you know, being a really good colleague as well as potentially a boss. So the training was great because it gave me confidence to see that when you invest time in other people, and really understand what their fear is and what's holding them back, not just the skills that they don't have, but normally it's a mindset that holds people back. Then lo and behold, training gives you this awesome toolkit of stuff that other folk don't know those secrets to. You know, you do your in Guilds Awards, so you do a bit of training, there's some secrets to how to do that, and, and that still very much um, infects everything about how I go about my job. Um, but I think the other thing of a huge value for me is, is my parents. Their values are impeccable. And I believe that also, again, from a communication leadership perspective, your values are always going to show up even when you think they won't. Mm. If you have a bad attitude and uh, if you have you know values which are um, in some ways nefarious or self-serving, then people will find you out. Don't pretend. You know, you have to be yourself. I was really raised to take accountability for myself. And as I mentioned, the ponies—you don't feed them; they die. It was not a Tamagotchi I had; it was an actual live being. And you get the dogs, cats, you know, and whatever pets people have. Also, to understand, there's always a choice. They drilled me that you know, when you feel a bit sorry for yourself, as you do sometimes, when you're obviously a teenage, uh, a teenage daughter—not not not more actually—you know, it's that thing of well, I really have to. Well, I don't really know. I don't have a choice. I really struggle when I hear that from people because there is always a choice. You may not like the choices. But none of us are a hostage in life and yet we often behave as if we are. As an only child, um, you know, without siblings, they still raise me to think about my impact on others um and to really try and do well, not just myself, but you know, to to, to consider that other folk count. And my mum you know still alive is is incredibly gracious and, and supportive to other people and still to me. So I really do think that um you know those things together probably in reflection are are a lot about trust you know whether you're training people have to trust that you're going to give them good advice and when they try it they're not going to hurt themselves they're not going to be embarrassed your impact on others it's got to be on the whole positive or at least neutral and the sense of I you know I I will take accountability for myself and and I encourage you to do the same you can't say that and then not do it so I think you know people under you and people who might be listening to your communications that you want to move in some way or people who have you know, so work under your direction, have got to have trust. Mm-hmm. And the young bosses, you know, I've worked really, under, really only under one um, particular person who sapped my confidence because they just didn't support or connect with me. They weren't in any way mean, but they just kind of asked the question, how are you today? Right, move along. You tell me about a, a difficult thing. Yeah, and, and there was just no interaction with it. And it was almost worse than not caring, I think. So, you know, I would say that communication and, and leadership, again, very similar, having a great intellectual brain isn't enough. You have to be emotionally intelligent, too, and you have to be prepared to keep working at that because that's the thing that's harder, I think. So So ho- hopefully those things um, explain a little bit about that. And, and you probably already knew that because you've been stalking me. <laughs>
0: As listeners will know, I do like to do a bit of research. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just wondering if you've got any reflections then on the current crisis, because we're seeing a lot of leaders turn up very much being themselves, you know, the ironing's in the background, the dog's running around, the kids are, you know, doing whatever the kids are doing in the background. And I'm just wondering if you've got any reflections on whether this might be a long-term change that we're going to see in leadership styles and approaches. Would you like to see that?
1: So your point about people being more themselves, I, I really like it. I've actually been checking in with a lot of people on our teams over the last couple of weeks, and, and I have I have been, well, I was doing a vlog actually about three weeks ago and I got cat bombed, which given I don't even have a cat was interesting, you know, Maisie the neighbour's cat came in to say hello and as I was recording my little vlog, you know, basically there's a there's a tail in my face and a, a, and a bum in the screen. So Maisie you know, is not remotely concerned about being her authentic self. Um, and, you know, I've been involved in, I, I, I got slightly laid into some fractions, uh, into some uh, sort of trigonometry and I can tell you I'm not better now than I used to be at that. So, you know, just this sense of, you know, get orders in, you know, somebody's daughter or son is sitting there, you know, we're not going to stop the meeting. The whole team is trying to help them out with this question from homework and then they're going back. Now, to me, that's about being not particularly adaptive. And I can remember some years ago doing, I wish I could remember what it was, but there's a kind of psychometric that essentially said how much like yourself you are at work. And there's these kind of ranges and, and there's, you know, a range for how normal people and um, you know kind of change themselves a bit when they go to the office and mine was kind of cigarette paper thin there was almost no distance and that's only because I tried really really hard to not swear uh, not so <laughs> and it, it doesn't always work I'm sorry and even in ONR I can remember uh, maybe after my first few months one of our security team you um, know, bumped into me on, on the stairs not literally to be clear there was no accident he came across me on the stairs and uh, he just couldn't quite help himself. This is generally an ex-military person. And he looked me up and down and he said, Adrienne, um, is the chief executive allowed to wear jeans? And I, <laughs> and I looked behind me and I said, I'm pretty sure the chief executive doesn't care what she's wearing so long as she's fit for the job today and I'm doing filing. you know. So I kind of go to work sometimes in jeans and a hoodie. It depends what I'm doing, how I'm feeling. And, and, and that for me is part of being cosy to get on with what I do. Equally, I might be wearing a very beautiful dress, with which I'm desperately trying not to spill anything on because I'm going on to a speech you know, or a conference somewhere. So I tell that as a kind of lighthearted way of saying what we perceive as appropriate about ourselves and other people. It's got to be about the values and the productivity and the impact, not what they look like, not what they sound like, not whether they have a different energy from us or whether their you know children are well behaved or not that, that particular morning. But it is about our our contribution. And therefore, I think what the current crisis will do, that kind of macro question you ask, you know, will COVID-19 have consequences on leadership styles? Do you know what? I really hope so. Mm. I hope people understand that they can show up to work as their true selves. And importantly, I hope bosses understand that that is a good thing, not a bad thing. I am certainly seeing my team show greater empathy and respect for the diversity of our lives, for the diversity of our thinking and the diversity of our needs. We're powering through an, an incredibly challenging um, scenario and none of that has shaken our commitment to doing our jobs to the best of our abilities. And So I think as we realise that we'll never go back to normal, we need to get rid of the emotional connection if, well, yes, it is normal, but somehow great. And instead, you know, as I say, release that fear and think ahead about what new normal could look like. And again, as an example, I've been pushing homework in since I got to ONR. It's, it's, not, it's not traditionally embraced that. It's fair to say we've done a lot more of it over the last few years. But, you know, I still hear the odd story or I might see somebody and say, oh, you know, what are you doing? on I'm writing a report. And I might say, what are you doing in the office today then? Oh, you know, my, my manager thought it was best if I came in to do it. I think this will wipe out those final um final points where do you know what? If you want to work tonight, because this afternoon it's your child's sports day, knock yourself out. If you actually need to work Saturday and Sunday because Thursday, Friday, you're taking your elderly parent for some appointments, knock yourself out. The team will sustain it because what they're then is greater commitment. We need everybody then to pull together when we do have a team meeting. Everybody is there, but they treat it with respect rather than something that they have to be at. And therefore, we're fully present in our personal and our work lives. And I would love to see that happen. I really do see o developing greater emotional intelligence, as I say, that, you know, empathy and respect. I do feel a bit excited because if I said to you, imagine if this pandemic that has cost so many people so much leads to big gains for the planet, for the environment and for the human race, it's a very different spinner than being fearful. Mm. I realise that there is a lot to be fearful of about this pandemic. You know, I have an elderly mum. She is in lockdown. She's bored rigid. I can't believe she's done it. She really wants to go out. You know, she has every, you know, an underlying health condition. That means if she gets it, we've talked about it, we know she will die. She has a main problem that, you know, she will not survive COVID. And yet my mum is talking about joining her church by Zoom you know, talking to her friends more often than she used to, talking to the neighbours over the fence more than she used to. So I, I think there is a lot to learn and I I hope, it, I hope it affects us for the best. It really should.
0: I love the idea of it just sparking this deeper emotional intelligence in us. I just think that's a wonderful idea. Let's talk a little bit about ONR inside ONR. I'm I'm already guessing, and you've said it, you've got lots of technical experts. So I just wonder what the, the makeup of your workforce is. I mean, is there such a thing as a typical employee and, and what's the culture like?
1: We're about 650 odd. We've quite a lot of part-time uh, staff within that. We're about two-thirds in regulatory roles and about another third in our other specialist functions like you know, HR, policy columns. Uh, finance, um, and also our admin support for our inspectors as well. Um, so I, I would say that there isn't a typical um, person in the one hour. I, I really hope no organisation has typical people. Can you imagine if everybody turns up and they're all typical? That'd be just horrible, wouldn't it? Um, so I don't think we we have typical as people, but what is really typical um, is the professionalism, you know, the commitment, as you said earlier, that purpose, just recognising the importance of serving the public. And of regulating being more than just regulating, it is about working with stakeholders. It is about transparency and you know and about telling our story in a way that um, local communities can understand well too. I imagine that these basic you know people in lab coats, these grey-haired falcons with test tubes, um, you know, working in small silos, um, mm-hmm. and actually our people have incredible character. Uh, And, you know, whilst we're more diverse now and more colourful, I think, uh, in the last few years, really, you know, when we consider we have people who are, in some cases, the world leading experts, you know, nobody knows probably in this podcast what graphite is. But let me just tell you, it's not just in pencils. It is critical. It is the safety feature of a nuclear power plant. So graphite is really cool and really important. But we have particular reactors in this country that are different from nearly everywhere in the rest of the world. So our teams who are working out the science of the limitations of graphite are literally world leaders. That's typical, if we want to talk about typical. So if you imagine it being a bit like a car where you can have all these different parts, some of them you see, some of them are hidden, you don't see. They tend to be somewhere under the bonnet. And if you don't put them together right, if you don't oil them and look after them and and, and, treat them well, eventually the car just doesn't work. It all a little bit like that because it's actually an organism of many different component parts that have to work together well, and and that I think speaks to your question about culture. We are mm. increasingly um, less silo based, more team working. That was a big issue I think when I got there. It really looked a little bit different, and I'm really proud of the work that we've done to build competence and confidence in each other. Um, and, and I think some of the stuff we see, you know. Ninety-five percent of my staff are, you know, prepared to go on record saying that they, you know, committed to helping O&R achieve its goals. Now, frankly, I want to know what, what the issue is with the other five. But that's an off that's an off the chart number for the staff survey. But when we think about, you know, in the first couple of years, um, I joined in in uh, twenty sixteen, so you know, four years ago. And those first two years, our employee engagement index went through the roof, you know, it went to 77%. It's way above public sector benchmark. And I know it's up again. We just need to get around to doing another staff survey, frankly. You know, we saw that our, our sort of scores go up in 31 areas. 31 of 36 areas improved in two years, some of them by leaps of 20, 25%. So when you talk about culture, for me, it's really driven by, yes, leaders, of course, but it's driven by staff. It's driven by everybody recognising their part in that organism and wanting the whole thing to be better, not just their bit of the car, but realise that the whole thing has to work well. So, you know, I think the um, the fact that our boffin um, you know, does place a particular and important premium on precision, on, mm-hmm. deep, on full risk awareness, um, and that is the prevailing culture in ONR because we regulate nuclear. <laughs> that needs to be it. But you know, the conversation I tend to have is that that absolutely works when you're regulating a your nuclear facility. But it's not always so helpful when you want to make internal changes that need a bit more flexibility and iteration. And so I think we're still getting used to this. Need to be a little bit more flexible. That the things we prize externally don't necessarily
0: need to be applied 100% to the things that we are planning internally and just getting that balance. I'm just curious about you talked earlier about silos and, and, and that analogy of a car and all the parts of a car working together in in, in unison. Lots of organisations struggle with that silo mentality and I'm just wondering if you could I don't know if it's possible to point to one or two enablers, something that you did that you thought that really helped break down some of those internal barriers and got people collaborating.
1: Probably three things would jump to mind. Uh, The first is I never talk about silo mentality um, because I'm anchoring the very thing that I don't want. And, And actually, I don't think it's so much a mentality. I think it is a lack of broader context and awareness and therefore, again, as the leader and the communicators, if what we're doing is saying to folk, you know, they shan't not have a silo mentality, you will work better in teams. They're like, I don't know. What does that mean? I, I don't see. Where, where am I meant to be doing this? So I think the story is much more compelling, you know, that telling the stories about when we've succeeded through teamwork. And, and I always use teamwork as that, that kind of contributing fact. Because who doesn't want who doesn't want to be in a successful team as a positive, I, I think, metaphor? And therefore, you know, I've used analogies like, um, I've used metaphors like Everest, where, you know, I, I've sort of physically I, had photos and presentation decks with staff saying, this is what the Everest expedition looks like on the ground. I mean, it looks like somebody's camping store threw up, doesn't it? There's just all this stuff on the ground everywhere, oodles and oodles of it. And, you know, you don't see the whole team at that stage and then there's some people stay at base camp and some people are right back on the ground. Some people are going up and some other people are going to the top. But you need logistics. You need, you need people who are great at reading the weather. You need the Sherpas. You need the people who are training you how to, to do a mountain. You need the people with the emergency supplies and you need the backup and somebody driving a helicopter just in case. So when you start to tell the story that, you know, probably only six or 10 people get to the top of Everest, but there are dozens of people involved in that and it all starts with you know the training and the idea and the vision and recognizing then that if they all do that without talking to each other would you be the one going up Everest on a snowy day? I don't think so. So that sense of mission and ONR of of being codependent is the big thing I think to get across and I I do think people find that sometimes quite scary. I'm awesome. I don't really know about you. relying on you feels quite dangerous. So again, you go back to trust. How do you build trust? You put teams in place that are diverse. You don't beat them up if they get it wrong first or second time round. You might be getting a bit more by third, let's be honest. But you give them the chances to see by modelling that. And for me, that had to come from the top because the management team was actually pretty separate in its views and, and taking the time to allow them to understand why it wasn't a team of five or 10 brewing individuals that was the most important thing to me, although they are brilliant. What was the most important thing is that we were brilliant together. And again, that diversity of views. So I think the communications, you know, the metaphors and the analogies, the stories that we tell, setting that tone from the top and absolutely setting teams up to succeed and showing them and continually hammering that thing that, look, this works. And by the way, doesn't it feel nice <laughs>
0: Isn't that just a nice, don't it nice to play with different people? The other word that I read a lot about when you were talking about the changes that you wanted to make at ONR was the word accessible. I just would dig into to what you mean by that and how you're achieving that.
1: I feel that as a public servant, um, I serve the public. I mean, this sounds pretty obvious, but not everybody gets that. Um, we don't serve industry. We don't serve government. We don't serve the anti-nuclear lobby per se. We don't serve anyone's sector. We serve the lot. And when you sort of, it's not that you reject it, but I think when you see the job through that lens, it changes then a view about your communications. My team is, I think, one of the best in the world at communicating to its peers um, and in communicating with industry. There's no shadow of a doubt in my mind about that. But we weren't as thoughtful about people who weren't industry insiders. Therefore, there was a sense that we were a bit secretive, Mm -hmm. that we spoke in codes, and that we weren't very open So for me, um, the word accessibility was about being open, but in a way that people can understand. It's very easy to say, hey, we're transparent, we publish everything. But if nobody knows what it means and the general public can't at least follow that story, then it isn't really accessible. My criticism wasn't that we weren't prepared to be transparent, but it's that we were doing it in a way that actually disabled a number of people from joining the conversation about our regulation and about nuclear safety and security. And we were actually very much helped by the anti-nuclear lobby, actually, because, you know, those forums and and members of that community were, I think, essential in helping us demonstrate and and change on this journey. They have put in really provocative and and challenging points for us to consider. And every time we have to, to work that through and make sure that what we're saying is understandable and understood, that requires us to, to go back through our logic. It essentially requires us to redo our math. And, and I'm very grateful to them for helping us communicate differently. I think also you know, the other point for me was tone of voice. We were quite officious. Mm. Clearly a, a regulator has to have gravitas. Clearly we do a very, very serious job, but I think our, our tone of voice is now much more human, You know, less officious and our language is simpler. And that, in turn, encourages people to engage with us. Another thing we did on, on accessibility was social media. We just didn't use social media at all, like a lot of public bodies actually, but we were allowed to. So, And it was a bit new for me too, to be honest, because I've come from a body that was barred from using social media by the um, Secretary of State in that department. So, you know, we find that just a joy. Being able to showcase the team and what we're doing in different ways has been fantastic. Um, I think it showcases the ONR brand, you know, our work and our people very well. And you know, if I tell you that um, you know, all of this I think has gone to not a less serious view of ONR, but a more authoritative brand, which is actually human and which is interesting uh, actually. So, you know, a real hard outcome from that is that we no longer struggle to recruit. Back in 2016, we had a, I think we had 29 so-called cold spots. That's a lot for a team of 600, Um, you know, areas that we were struggling to get people into. We hadn't been very diverse, as I said earlier. And, you know, when I looked at the way we communicated in our branding, it was very, it was very green, as in a dark green colour, not green uh, in in the kind of environmental logos. It was very stiff and formal and there wasn't a blinking picture of anybody in sight. And so the ability to work with more creative people and get some of our inspectors fronting some of those campaigns it's just transformed how people see us. you know to have Sam Murray, for example, you know, one of our working mums, she's got two two young children in the team being the face of the campaign for the recruitment into that specialist function. It's just that's very different for ONR. Maybe not different for lots of others, but very different for us. And one and behold, what do you get? More parents prepare to join ONR because they realise that if Sam can do it, maybe we can as well. So, you know, again, mm-hmm. all of our teams, and that's what I mean about that kind of mindset. People stopped thinking recruitment was HR's problem. We started to see it as a communication issue, as an operational issue. And actually, the solution was the inspectors, not HR. And I have to also say, it saved us a ton of money and got us better and better candidates every year.
0: I think listeners will be interested in digging into how you communicate internally. And I know this might feel quite a sort of tactical question, but I think people will be interested in, The ways in which you enjoy internal communication, the kinds of things that you do that you feel you really get traction on, any aspects of internal comms that maybe are more challenging than others.
1: I mean, I suspect that your uh, listeners will be really familiar far more than me with the kind of engagement for success, you know, the four pillars. Very much around the creating that strategic narrative. You know, where is the organisation going, and why does it get anything to do with me? What is my role in this? If you do not create connection to the strategic narrative, it's very difficult to inspire because you just feel that like you're doing a job as opposed to fulfilling a purpose. I think the second thing then on engaging managers, you know, that isn't always easy. We're in three different sites. People are out in the field a great deal. We have managers that, on the whole. And perhaps I've had less leadership development along the way than perhaps other sectors I'm used to, so it's, it's a different kind of ask here. But you have to accept and you have to embrace that you need all of the managers pulling in, in you know, in unison. We've got to take the organisation and support that strategic narrative at all levels, and that takes time to build. The third pillar there about employee voice, well, it's all very well known what you want to say, but you'd better make sure you know what people are saying back. So, you know, whether it's having good feedback mechanisms, whether it's doing things in a face-to-face way that just, you know, really begs for feedback, because I think, again, many companies struggle to, to get feedback from the pit face is, is great, but also having some informal things, you know. who is those that I can phone up and say, that meeting that I joined yesterday seemed a bit quiet. What what was said after I left? Don't name any names. Just tell me what went on. Oh, no, they were great. You know, they were just really, you know, keen to go on to the next item. Or, oh, my giddy aunt Adrienne. Well, let me tell you. So, you know, I think that having some ears and eyes on the ground is an an essential and um, informal way as well as the formal. And, and I think, you know, when I were blessed, actually, to have very constructive and productive unions as well. And they help us with a version of the employee employee voice. And the fourth one, integrity. You know, I spoke earlier about my parents' values um, driving me. And I really think integrity is, is critical. I don't really have the character to sell something that I don't believe in. You know, you can take my job, but you absolutely can't take my integrity because that's a damn sight more valuable to me. I really think that every member of a leadership and management team is a communicator, whether they like it or not, because we're transmitting messages even when we say nothing. So I think back to the early days, my first few weeks, I just met staff, that's all I did. I went round in groups and, and I asked them, I had two main things I said to them one was what do I need to know to make your life better around here and the second was an ask which is will you give me feedback whether it's positive or negative but especially if it's negative I need to know now obviously that's harder for some to do than others but you know in at that point we were about 480 staff and I came back with I think it was 226
0: asks wow wow
1: um and those were all logged, categorized some were still working on culture for example four years later some I dealt with within the first month just that's not happening anymore stop others took you know some time in the middle so again the transparency of feeding back, this is what you've told me holy moly that's a big agenda I haven't even got to the outside world yet I've just met you lot um but again they had you know i trust that we were working through those and that it wasn't just a kind of fake exercise to say hello and i I still know the ones we haven't done i've still got them in a blinking spreadsheet somewhere and uh, i beat myself up with the fact that i haven't finished them all um so again perhaps before we seek to be understood you know we have to see what people want here's what i want you to know but first off what do you need me to know uh, I don't always have the pleasure of giving good news. Sometimes it's difficult news. Sometimes it's, it's more constructive feedback, which people may find difficult. Just be yourselves, be be, 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 human. be briefed up to the help that we're afraid of missing a word instead of missing the point. <laughs> and again, you know, we can all have scripts for certain things and external speech is a bit different, but I don't like going into staff meetings feeling I need to read all these words out in this way you know, I might get it a bit wrong, and I might miss a bit, and come back to it. But for me, the conversation is the important thing, and that, um, in terms of engagement, is is key. Because the more you have a good conversation, the more you can focus on the right things.
0: You said there that I don't know what I don't want to quote you back wrongly, but it sounded like you said that you spoke to people inside the organisation before you went externally. Is that actually what happened? Did you choose to start internally first?
1: Yes, there was one exception, which was a speech which I rationally agreed to do um, on day nine. Uh, actually that turned out to be really good um, so that's a whole other story I can tell you but I just thought I can do that I'm going to blink and do it because I, I believed in the cause and that was very much about a, a diversity and um, so I went to speak at the Women in Nuclear Conference within my first two, <laughs> within my first two weeks in the job who does that Anyway, it was great I really enjoyed it and um, and it wasn't too bad uh, for them either but yeah it, it felt and a lot of my job is dealing with external stakeholders don't get me wrong but I just felt that it would have been weird to go out finding out what other people thought about is before I even knew what I felt about is, And actually, what they told me really meant that I was actually really well prepared when I went. It wasn't a big gap, but when I started talking to industry, what I was doing is synthesising the feedback internally to externally, and, and something seeing slightly different connections. I think if I'd done it the other way around, I wouldn't have been able to have a conversation with the externals. I would just have been listening. Actually, those staff that gave me their time set me up to make a really positive impression personally, but more importantly for ONR when I went out, because in a very short period of time I assimilated an enormous amount of hard and soft data, far better than reading a ton of reports. Talking to people for me is, is really important. Um, and, and like I just said, you know, during this COVID thing, I'm writing every week. That's a new thing for me. A global goes out is the single source of truth but also I've just um, sort of partway through around the of catch-ups and kits, just listening in. Here's the broad thing that's going on. You've read the globals. What kind of feedback do you need to give me? You know, how are we doing? What would you like more or less of? What are you worried about? What's coming next? Anything else I should know? So those are mainly like, kind of listening in um, You know, at the sessions as well.
0: Incredibly valuable. I'm just wondering if you feel... Under any pressure? You talked about women in nuclear and speaking in that event just two weeks into the job, but you must be one of the most well known figureheads now in terms of women in nuclear. Do you feel under any kind of pressure or do you just relish the opportunity?
1: I think role modeling is, is probably what I'd say rather than, than, than figurehead. There are a lot of very talented people in, in nuclear. Of- Genders, races, disabilities—you know. Again, it's about seeing how you get more diversity into the sector, and it just so happens that I'm able to speak for gender because it is the thing I can I can represent. You know, I equally believe there are other great networks working in this. But the pressure for me um, is is not externalised. It's not that fear of other folks now. It's 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 knowing the pressure of having authority, having a voice that others see, and using that for the best possible use. When I did my interview, and I told you back to my ABCs, there was no R for role like, you know, This was entirely unexpected. Um, but when I got into the women in nuclear movement and they later asked me to become their first patient, again, that was another thing. I thought that was junk mail. I thought that was somebody who broke on me because a certain email went to the wrong place and then when I got a different one, I thought it was somebody having a laugh. And I said, "No, that's not a real thing. I don't know where you got that from. And then... There were some other calls and, and I realised that somebody had been meant to ask me if become the first patient. And and I thought long and hard about it because I really don't, you know, I, I was fearful of being seen as some kind of um, you know, aggressive feminist niche market, you know, here just to to, to, to you know to sort of run our own gains. And it's not what I'm about. I'm really about general diversity. But I realised, having spoken to a lot of people by then, that you know, that the bottom line for me is, well, if I don't who will and I was very fortunate that the organisation supported me to do that for three years, and and I learned more than I was ever able to give over. But I think all of us are role models. I'll go back to that statement I made about leaders. You know, we're we're communicating even if we think we're not. You know, we transmit even when we say nothing. We are role models when people look to us whether we want them to look to us or not. So we better be good role models.
0: Just talking a little bit about disability. I I heard you say in another interview, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said the only disability in life is a bad attitude. Um, (laughs) Which is a lovely line. I'm just curious about this, though, a positive attitude, self-confidence. These are things that you can't just flick a switch, can you, and create. And you've talked about training and mentoring, and I'm just wondering how do you encourage people to take a more positive attitude to have more self-confidence?
1: yeah, i I very much believe that people are a composite of all the stuff that they did and were done to them by their parents and then a bit of the bosses. So you know whenever you meet someone for the first time, you know you you see perhaps one layer of of you know hundreds, if not thousands. And I think um, the vast majority of people I work with I think have a, have a great attitude certainly my friends do I choose not to be around people who sap my energy and you know it, it kind of you know don't take accountability but I think sometimes people might not understand what's driving their belief system. and I think you know I go back to my job as a trainer in many days when, it, when I was also involved with a sort of person centered counseling really that was a, an incredibly powerful period where you're beginning to learn that you really have to understand people as much as they're prepared to. And some folk don't want to tell you anything. You know, this is me at work. It's nothing to do with you. But I think those people who really strive to be um, role models, who strive to do their absolute best are, are, you know, they have all the power of being a, a sponge for feedback. It's finding the right trigger for them. So, you know, it may be that the last time they did something that had a really negative effect on them by a previous boss or because their parents have led them to believe a certain thing which kept them safe as children. But now actually it's a barrier. They haven't reset that mindset. They haven't sort of considered what that set of beliefs is that's leading them actually to be counterproductive. And I think when you can work really closely with somebody and try and identify that, it really does make a difference, not just to the job and and to your relationship with them, but arguably to their lives. And I could could think of countless people in my career where there's been a, "oh" moment that has really led them to be more courageous and to getting out of that comfort zone and to recognising, as I said at the beginning, we are all accountable. We all have choices. I think the other way, less positively, is where somebody just is impacting others with a bad attitude you, you kind of need to have a really you know sensible conversation about that and whether they believe it or not just make it clear that it's not acceptable it's not acceptable to show off at work splash your negativity and everybody else and then leave them feeling you know poor or, or to take the shine off other people's achievements and, and, and it's not acceptable to I think occupy that space of well it's always been like this here it'll never change you know all those things say more about those people than about me And um, I I do think there are times where we just need to say it's not okay. So, you know, I'd love to change your mind, but if not, it's still not okay. And and that means you need to guard that or you need to leave. And and there may be other places that love hiring people with bad attitudes, but I would define you to find me any job advert or any specification that says people with bad attitudes, please apply here. (laughs) (laughs) None of us wants to work with them. So I think none of us should want to be them. Anything else you can deal with. And it did actually came way, way back from, um, I mentioned earlier that my mum was involved with riding the disabled, which is how I sort of, sort of fell in love with horses. And when you see what people, you know, really significant disabilities were able to do with a bit of understanding and how much they would push. Even now, you know, we've got a Paralympian, got a Paralympian on, I think, two teams. Uh, I don't know how to get the energy, frankly, but when we see what people can push through, then it really does show us that a lot of our life is, is attitude. Not to say we don't get bad breaks sometimes, and as friends and leaders, we have to support each other. But I do think there is a, a connection between the number of bad breaks, the repetition of bad
0: breaks, and a bad attitude. Mm, mm, yeah, that makes perfect sense. You've written a, about <laughs> diversity, and I know it's it's very dear to your heart. I've, I read something we said, diverse teams make better decisions, which appeals to my regulatory role as it's good for safety and security. But more than that, it appeals to my humanity as we all deserve encouragement and a chance to be our very best selves, which exactly is what you've just said. But organisations are held back when it comes to diversity. And I can think of many clients that would like to be more diverse, but it's just simply not happening. Are there any particular levers that you've seen pulled inside organisations? It seems like a funny analogy, so I apologise for that, but that really have pushed organisations forward when it comes to diversity.
1: Yes, I mean there's a ton of process stuff that we can do. You know, you can have name-blind recruitment. We've done all of these in hour, uh, I hasten to add, name-blind recruitment, making sure that the language in your adverts is um, truly, you know, neutral. It's amazing what you find out when you're on a job advert through a, a, a kind of gender checker and that's free you don't even need to pay for that it's always <laughs> so doing name-blind recruitment you know i, I mentioned earlier getting a, the faces of our teams involved in the recruitment campaigns showing people that you know you know regular people work here you know you, you know you can join we're awesome at certain things but we're, we're regular people making it friendly making people welcome and you know showing off your your team making sure that you're not just saying well you know it's really important but I'm doing nothing about it getting your men to talk about it if you're if you're you know short on women the last sector I came from uh, way back in the day was the voluntary sector you know I worked in fundraising it was 80% women 20% men we had a diversity problem we had to come at that a different way so Mm -hmm. I think the energy around the process and the feeling of comfort for people to come and work with you is very important um But I do think it goes further than that. That's actually the easy bit. For me, we have to, how I see it, I can't say we have to, but I think the thing that holds organisations back is fear. I think we are afraid of having the conversations that say, why don't women want to work here? Or why don't people who aren't able-bodied want to work here? Or why have we only got 3% people from BAME communities? Or whatever. Because we're a bit afraid that it might be not very politically correct or we don't know what to say with the answers. I know for a fact that there are men who will say to me, Adrian, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this anymore. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, is it all right if I give you a hug? And and the fact is, you know, yeah, probably. Um, But for other people, no, just ask. I think what we have to do is ask more questions. You know, Adrian, I've never been a woman in nuclear. You are. Is there anything that would really help me help you succeed? Awesome. You know, uh, yes, let's talk about that. And if we think that there are people in our organisation who are not happy with how things are, instead of trying to avoid that conversation for fear of what it will lead to, we have to lean in, I think, to that constructive tension and potential conflict. And when I say, and that's at all levels, that isn't just senior, you know, we all make assumptions. The human brain is wired to work at such a speed that it decides that you know about me because it remembers somebody that had kind of Scottish accent, was quite short and had kind of brown curly, you know, Mad hair um, looked a bit like her. So your brain's already said I look like that, I'm probably like that person, even if I'm nothing like them. And you know it just keeps the same. It works when we had to identify tigers that we're going to use, but it isn't a good way of identifying our friends and foe as family, friends and, and, and certainly business. So I think being really aware of when we're triggered into something which just isn't relevant anymore. Um, I, you know, I really have to work through really tall guys because I've had some terrible experiences with a very tall men over the years. I hasten to add none of them in recent years. But, you know, when I see somebody six foot four coming my way, I have to think about it. It's not that person. You are safe. This is a new person. So, you know, we just kind of, again, it goes back to knowing yourself and, and knowing what your own biases are and really trying to fight that unconscious bias. So at least... You can get head of your lizard brain, you know, every now and again. But I think there are there are three things I would say um, that if we're really interested in, in making a difference over and above the process side and you know having some benefit it's this. One is recognizing and being a visible role model. The research particularly into women but also into being uh, minorities is that having visible role models is the single biggest thing any company, any sector, any team can do. And that goes back to why I said yesterday, Women in Nuclear. It's, you know, KPMG published reports. There's many. If you look in the Women in Nuclear website, you'll have a ton of stuff there. But it takes time and effort and consistency isn't negotiable. You can't be a role model on Monday, but decide that you just can't bother on Tuesday or Wednesday, maybe half. You have to be there. And that requires you not just to be, as I saw it, not just a role model with hour but without to really put my money where my mouth is, to stand on podiums, to see what we're doing, to to ask for help and to recognise when um, we can do more to to, to succeed together. The second, I think, is praise. The cocktail of drugs that are released in the brain when somebody gets praise is is massive, you know, awesome. Um, The problem is it doesn't tend to stick. So, you know, a great coach that that I know know, has this phrase, you know, Teflon for praise, Velcro for criticism. Mm. And then for that Teflon, again, the science suggests that you need about five pieces of positive feedback for every one piece of criticism. And I I absolutely confess, I haven't always got this right. I've learned these things in recent years. In my 20s, I was probably horrible. I thought half and half was probably about good enough. But again, that builds confidence and that helps build diversity because people who are not the majority tend to have less confidence by virtue of their environment. And therefore, we have to make a special effort to make sure we feel confident. If you just do it with everybody, you don't have to figure out who's in in a minority or who doesn't. Mm. Just do it for everybody. So that sense of praising plenty, I think, also puts trust in the bank. Because then when you need to be critical, they're not in raised position. They've had a good experience. It's able to be contextualized that you are somebody who wants to help them. Mm -hmm. And that third thing then is actually calling it out. So visible role model, praising plenty calling it out calling it out is where you need to say no this isn't on don't say things up discuss some things there and then don't let them turn into one of those conversations you've had them you put it off for about three weeks and by the time you have it you're pretty sure that you're going to be fired destitute and homeless <laughs> is it just my brain that does that you know i, I think this is how it's going to go i have to don't be ridiculous adrian get a grip put your amygdala hijack back in its place Let's get the logical, the rational brain back in charge of my fear response here. And I generally find that the sooner you have that conversation, the better than later. But I also think where you're prepared to stand up and sometimes you have to do it in public. And um, you can't always do it in private, sadly, because some people, you know, do things in public repeatedly that they shouldn't. So you also have to be seen to call it out in public. Uh, again, I think if you don't do that, then people have a, at least a reason to judge you as lacking integrity in that regard so you know the policy stuff the hr stuff all of that absolutely but really it comes down to the behavior and the mindset again that role modeling that praising and that calling it out when you
0: have to Mm -hmm. thank you for the answer so thorough it's very helpful i'm going to turn i'm conscious of time to those quick fire questions if i may quick in terms of the way i ask them but you don't have to answer them in a quick way however you feel comfortable so what would most surprise people about Adrienne Kelby?
1: I think I'm a really open book, so probably not very much. I think people who maybe don't know me assume I have some really fancy degree, possibly a, whatever the top one is that you get, is um, a, like a first. Yes. Um, and despite my mum and dad really being quite happy to, to have a good year I chose not to. Um, I, I went to college for one year and then I went to get a job. So probably the most thing, I don't have a degree. I don't want to get one there either.
0: <laughs> what one book, journal, website, it doesn't really matter, should all leaders read?
1: The one that changed how I thought about leadership is actually not a book about leadership. It's a book about communications. Ah. Uh, interestingly, and I'm not just saying this because it's you, this is <laughs> genuine. Um, there's, a, in my view, a world-class speechwriter. Uh, his name is Simon Lancaster. He's a good London gazer, so he's on the domestic uh, UK product. And Simon Lancaster, I think he's on three books now, but his first book um, was about the, the, the secret language of leadership. I think it's Winning Minds um, is its title. And um, I find that quite transformational. This would be five jobs ago, mm. the way I saw language and leadership and if you're a bit short of time it's actually got a TED talk 15 minutes pretty much sums it up if you if you just want to see if it's worth it but I would love I mean I'm not on commission to be clear but if every one of your listeners was to at least have a look at the TED talk I'd love to hear their feedback on it and I'm pretty sure Simon would too but I I think that will show a lot of my thinking even today.
0: Mm -hmm. It's prompting me to ask a supplementary question which I'm gonna kick myself if I don't ask you. I have spent 30 years (laughs) spending quite a lot of time with senior people and CEOs, and you are not typical. And I just wonder, I don't know how much you might socialise with other leaders and other CEOs. Do you find yourself not typical? Or do you think we've just got too many stereotypes of the kind of hierarchical staid broadcasting type of CEO who doesn't really get the importance of comms always? I am an outlier.
1: Um, I say that because apparently lots of recruitment agencies can prove it. I've been told in the last three jobs that I've got that I've been the wild card. So they've kind of built that into my psyche. Now you know, I don't think I'm that wild, to be accurate, just you know, unusual. Um, I suspect there's more than, than we see. You know, the friends that I mix with have had a more traditional uh, route to, to to their roles, but I'm sure there are as many people that have been a little bit quirky. Um, so... Yeah, I'm a proven outlier. My, my my psychometrics are just weird, apparently, and nothing that you should be concerned about, no psychopathic tendencies, but they are a little bit unusual. But you know what? They're the, the me. And if I can take all the best things about the people with a more traditional route and the best things about me with my slightly quirky way forward, then um, maybe I can get the best of both worlds
0: and benefit mm. you know, from that. So here's the big question. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you couldn't fail? So we take failure off the table and this can be anything.
1: Oh, I'd like this one. So um, if I were kind of queen for the day, I would make kindness and empathy new mandatory requirements for any leadership position in every sector, (laughs) including being prime minister or president. (laughs) <laughs> that would be the starting point and if you don't make it past that it doesn't matter what else you got kindness and empathy I think we need a world that has more kindness and empathy in it um, and if that was too much I would I would get rid of my fear of heights because I'm stupidly scared of heights and I made myself go Paris sending um off a really tall hill in France last year and I've sort of enjoyed it but I, I I'm not able to do it again obviously at the moment but I'd like to not be scared of heights and just jump off stuff because I think that'd be amazing.
0: <laughs> when you think of the world's best leader, alive or dead, who comes to mind? I have a friend who um, lived under apartheid in South Africa
1: and she fled uh, to South Africa um, because she met her husband who was Scottish uh, and now lives in Scotland. So I think her story on a really personal level touched me. And so for me, it's about Rosa Parks. She just had sheer selfless courage. You know, when Rosa showed, and I think it was about leadership, one voice can create global change. You know, we we need to, it's that thing about calling out. We need to be prepared to be the one voice that calls things out in our lives, even if we're fearful. Because, you know, every time we call something out, every time we we say that it's not acceptable, um, there's an opportunity for change. And I think if Rosa Parks could speak up in a way that, that led to change across, you know, the entire American civil rights movement, then I think we should be expected to be able to offer fair and supportive feedback to colleagues. So I, I think Rosa Parks, for me, might not be seen as a leader in any hierarchical
0: sense, but is a true leader in humankind. And finally, this is borrowed from the Tim Ferriss show, we give you a billboard. And on this billboard, you can create a message for millions to see. So, a metaphorical billboard. What message would you have on it?
1: Is this like a really big billboard? like like big yeah. kind of billboards? That you yeah. You the
0: ninety-six um, sheets one, yes. Um,
1: so I'm tempted. Your comfort zone isn't your friend, but we've covered that already. So I'm going to go for the second thing. Um. I have another little phrase that I I am quite drawn to using um, and that would be uh, choose today to be your biggest, best, boldest self. You won't be the only one that will thank you tomorrow. Oh,
0: I like it a lot. <laughs> Adrian, it has been such an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much.
1: You're very welcome. And I'm now just slightly terrified that you genuinely are um, doing some <laughs> research into me. You're clearly somebody who takes pride in your work. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it too, and it's always lovely to talk about the work of ONR and, uh, and a bit about how I got here. I hope that I hope that folk get, you know, I, I'm I'm definitely not any kind of God, I'm certainly no superhero, you know, I don't have any special powers, but I think, you know, every day we can all strive to be our best self and to help other people to be our best self. So I think if this podcast has the potential to make even a little difference to one person, let's get some feedback. So I'm setting you the challenge of really looking for feedback and coming back to me
0: in a few months and telling me if there's anything else we can do to change the world. You are on, Absolutely all the details listeners will be in the outro and in the show notes thank you so much you're welcome (laughs) lovely to see you lovely to see you we'll speak soon so that's a wrap for this episode of the internal comms podcast if you would like a private coaching session with adrienne simply share with us what you enjoyed about our conversation just Tweet us at AB Thinks, and we're going to ask Adrienne to pick a worthy winner for that confidential coaching session with her. To find out more about the books and the other resources that Adrienne and I talked about, head over to the show notes at AB's website. That's abcom A-B-C-O-M-M.co.uk, and you'll find the podcast section there. And while you're on the site, do sign up for our monthly IC newsletter. It's called, I saw this and thought of you. We're putting extra effort into this monthly newsletter during this pandemic. We're giving you updates on new research and reports and other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms, plus inspirational content that we're just keen to share with the IC community. Now, if you did enjoy this episode, it would be great if you could help make us more discoverable for other IC pros out there. And I'm told the very best way of doing that is to simply rate the show on iTunes. If you could help us get to 100 five-star ratings, that would be incredible. So all that remains is to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the Internal Comms podcast. Stay safe and well. And until we meet again, lovely listeners, remember, it's what's inside that counts.